Hello and welcome to the Dive Deep, Climb High podcast. I'm Mel Luizu and together with my guests, we explore all different aspects of leadership in higher education. With inspiring stories, practical tips and a little bit of fishiness, this show will help you dive deep into the leader you are and climb high, unleashing your power and potential. Dive deep, climb high, can-do leadership in a world of can't. Today, we are going to dive deep into wellness, a topic that should have been high on the leadership agenda, but really wasn't until more recently. And that's perhaps no surprise as leaders we're so busy doing that we can forget about looking after ourselves and others. And for me, I think one of the big positives that's come out of COVID and the pandemic is that wellness has moved up the leadership agenda and leaders are focusing on their own well-being and the well-being of their teams. So I'm so pleased that my guest today is founder and chief wellness officer at Wellwise, the workplace well-being optimizers. She's also a freelance strategic workplace well-being consultant and I am so pleased that she agreed to be a guest on the show and I can't wait for our conversation to start. So please welcome to the show Bobby Hartshorn. Hello, so nice to be here. Lovely to have you Bobby. How is the weather in Dubai today? I have to say, um, I always feel a bit guilty when I have conversations with people in the UK at this time of year because we're in possibly the nicest part of our year weather-wise. We're way ahead of our crazy summer heat. And I always think February is probably the worst month for weather in the UK. So I'm always a little bit smug. We've got glorious sunshine. It's about 26 degrees. So, yeah, I can't complain. (laughs) Lucky you, it's grey and wet here. So we'll we'll move on. Um, and I know that you are well known in the sector, but for those people that, that don't know you, can you share your story of how you've ended up in this wellness space? Yeah, absolutely. So I suspect that some people watching this might be surprised to see me here because I did start my career back in the UK university sector um, where I worked um, in my early career in widening participation, the Aim Higher program, and then I moved more into the marketing, international recruitment admission space, and then uh, moved out to Dubai and carried on working in education. And the big sort of role that I fulfilled that moved me into wellbeing space was at GSA or Global Student Accommodation Group. Um, where we were identifying an increase in student distress and, and challenges that students were facing within our residences. And we were operating residences globally. So it wasn't just within our UK portfolio that this was becoming a bigger challenge for us, but also all around the world. And also we were attending conferences and things and and the universities were really struggling to cope with the drain on resources and the demand for support that this change was creating. And so it struck me that the accommodation sector and that the accommodation in particular was a really great place to support students where they're in their home environment. It's during their downtime. Often in accommodation environments, there's 
public space where you can host events and talks and discussions and social activities and things. So I set about creating a student well-being framework that we could operationalize and, and adapt from a cultural perspective in our different market and we were really successful with that it became a huge part of the offer at GSA and their operational brand and we won some awards which was great and we really started to bring student well-being to the forefront of the private student accommodation sector and then COVID hit huzzah and it cropped up on us and, and snuck up on us and That created huge challenges, again, within the student space. And we had students stranded in countries for months on end. We had students isolating in accommodation far away from their families and the distress and fear of it all. So so it certainly created an interesting dilemma. And of course, our on-the-ground teams couldn't be physically present in a way that they had maybe been before. But we worked through that, which was interesting. And then my attention really got turned towards what was happening within not just my own organization, but within the world of work in general. And how was the well-being conversation evolving and how were companies and individual employees responding to that? How are they coping with it or not? (laughs) And also, what was this going to mean for the future? And I sort of forecasted a couple of trends that I thought were going to come out of this. First of all, I guessed, and hopefully rightly so, as your introduction suggested, that workplace well-being and well-being as part of the business strategy was going to become a bigger factor. So that was going to be really great. But there was going to be a lot of learning that needed to happen in that space that, that maybe a lot of businesses weren't ready for. The other big one, this sort of was the the natural evolution for me, was that a lot of those students who'd been resident with us and in universities from sort of 2015 to 2020 were starting to enter the workforce. And they were coming with very, very different value proposition, very different expectations, very different view of the world, and very different needs and wants in terms of what an employer could offer them. And again, this was going to be a field and an area that employers we're maybe going to have to adapt to and adjust to. So I decided at the end of 2020 to reluctantly leave GSA and start out on my own and spent a good year translating all of my knowledge and experience that I'd built in the sort of student university space into a workplace environment. I dived deep into the literature and the academic studies and the conversation in that space. And then I adapted and developed a research framework and a diagnostic system for organizations to understand what was happening within their organization from a well-being perspective and started to develop some workshops and some keynote speaker opportunities. And that's where I am today, really, at the very beginning of my startup journey, which is super exciting and hopefully going to be really useful to various employers around the world. I'm sure it will be. And so in terms of the research that you've done, the diagnostics, in my experience, people can look at well-being from sort of almost like a superficial level that, you know, if we if we allow people to work from home, yes, of course, that helps their well-being. But but I'm really interested to understand what do you see as the different levels and what do you see as that sort of tick box exercise that you know a lot of organizations can do where we're looking after the well-being to actually it's a fundamental part of an organization's culture 
and a trait, not a trait, but but actually leaders are understand the importance of it. And it isn't just a, well, I need to do this, but it's understanding the benefit of it. Yeah, that is, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head with the description of, of how it has evolved or it is continuing to evolve. Look, we're a long way off that being understood by all leaders in all organizations. Many didn't even really get to the first bit you've just described. And so they're a long way off the second. But some organizations are really advanced in that strategic thinking. But I call it well-being 1.0 and we're moving to well-being 2.0. So 1.0 was not so much just box ticking. There was an element of that and, and what we also call well washing, which is the equivalent of greenwashing in the environmental and sustainability space. So it was about saying we're doing lots of things and purchasing things off the shelf and hoping that they were going to be the silver bullets that required very minimal sort of commitment from leadership and management, very little by way of behavior change, structural changes, policy changes, values changes. And they were off the shelf solutions. A lot of organizations were looking to their insurance, their medical insurance providers to offer sort of add-on workshops and talks and things but it was all very thin let's be honest it wasn't really going very deep in an organization and the irony of it was and, and continues to be that organizations wonder why their employees don't engage with a huge amount of that offering you know they're spending quite significant amounts of money and a lot of HR's time to find these solutions and then you know some employers are getting two percent uptake the average is about seven or eight percent and the better ones in that category might get 20 percent so it's not working and it's expensive way of doing it and it feels tangential to the mission of the organization and it is leaving a lot of value on the table that is untapped and so what's happening is as we're starting to understand this space and there is now just a raft of research from organizations themselves to the academic world to various research agencies etc that have got really into this subject and it, it's really exciting some of the information that's coming out but where this is moving to is understanding that workplace well-being isn't just about a nice corporate social responsibility and, and let's look after our staff it's actually a critical success factor. It's a strategic imperative and it is becoming increasingly so. And there's a few reasons for that. Wellbeing continues to be proven to have an impact on almost every metric that a leader would care about from bottom line performance and share price to team cohesion and productivity to customer satisfaction and loyalty. None of those things are about, does Jeff in the corner feel well on Tuesday? You know, these are strategic elements of business and well-being is considered or recognized now as an increasing driver of those things. And the reason that that is so important is not just because it gives us an, a new tool and a new thing that we can uh, really get into to, to drive our businesses forward, but increasingly that is what our employees are demanding of us. And so the risk now of not including well-being is also a strategic decision because 
if we don't, we become an irrelevant employer. We don't become an employer of choice. We won't attract top talent. And we start to sort of fade into irrelevance on the employer branding side of things. So it's come up in sort of a dual aspect way. One is there's loads of evidence to say why it's a really great thing to do for your strategy. And the second is it's a really dangerous thing for you to avoid because it will also compromise your strategy. So so it is coming into the rhetoric of leadership. But there is an absolute mountain to climb in terms of unpacking how to optimize it in terms of delivering it a strategic imperative because it does require a significant diagnostic assessment on what are we doing at the moment that is maybe compromising well-being and performance and its ability to add that value and what do we need to stop or reduce in that space? But also, what are we doing that's great that we can do more of and advance and, and move to the next level? And then what do we need to add on top that's maybe going to be new? And a lot of the traditional talent management techniques, a lot of our traditional HR strategies, um, we're now talking about the future of HR and the HR transformation as a big subject. This is a big part of it. A lot of those practices that kind of got embedded in the last 30, 40 years have actually been proven to be detrimental to performance and detrimental to unleashing employee potential. And so we've got to unpack that and we've got to have a very honest conversation with ourselves and our organizations about what actually can we let go of and do we need to let go of and what great things will we doing that we need to do more of and what do we need to add on that's new or different. Huge mountain to climb. <laughs> so I'm really interested. Obviously, the work that you did at GSA with the student body, if people are listening to this podcast and they have a team, you know, they're maybe not at that strategic level. Is there anything that you can take from your work with students and say, actually, if you're looking to develop your leadership skills within the sphere of influence that you have, is there anything that you would recommend they start to look at? Mm, 100%. The thing I always loved about working at universities, and I continue to miss, and I am very hopeful that a university is going to call me up and say, come and work with us, because there's nothing, frankly, more invigorating than being on a university campus. They are such nice places to work. And there is an energy on a university campus that doesn't exist in most workplaces that gives organizations like universities a head start in this space. Um, so there's a lot that can be learned. And I think that as leaders and managers within the university sphere, we always have our eye on kind of two sets of people. The first set of people is the people we're directly managing then to get the work done within our department or our team. And the second is the student body. And, and those two things are so close in universities. The customer relationship is so much closer than it is in a lot of other industries. And so when we're looking at this space, there's a great book that I refer to when I talk about the change in mindset of the, and the skill set that needs to adjust here. Um, and it's called the, the School Will Take Care of Itself. And it's by an MBA coach. And he was very successful coaching a team in the MBA. And, and the idea is we need to stop making our targets, our 
numbers the focus of our management and our leadership. We need to start making the people and firing them up and untapping their potential and finding the, the magic fuel and, and recipe that gets the most out of them. Because if we can do that, the score takes care of itself. You know, you can take your eye off trying to reach all those targets and, and those deadlines, because when you've got a group of people who are so energized and are so positive and, and their team is working so well together and they come to work feeling like they really want to contribute to something that truly matters to them you will just find that they do amazing things all on their own. And we can stop using sticks and threats, not that I mean threats in a, a kind of really direct way, but this kind of idea that your job's on the line if you don't perform and there's no bonus if we don't hit this target. You know, this is the type of language that leaders and managers have been very used to dishing out. Um, it's actually really destructive to morale and really destructive to performance. And instead, if we can change that language, we can change the rhetoric, if we can get our place as a manager and our focus as a manager on how do we get the most out of the team how do we tune into humanness? How do we understand what a human needs to deliver their best in the role that we have them in? And actually, importantly, how else can they add value? Because this is the other big shift is we're very used to putting people in boxes according to job titles and salary and, and pay grade. And that pay grades in universities are huge, right? That's how they, they're really, they're really static. And actually what the movement and the conversation at the moment is, why would you pigeonhole somebody like that? If there's a project going on in the finance team that somebody in marketing has the right skills to add some value and a new fresh dynamic to that, why would you not encourage them to go and be part of that and to make that project a bigger success? And so it's thinking in a really, really different way. So I appreciate that I haven't given you like specific do this, do that, you know, on Tuesdays, do this and on Wednesdays, do that. But if you're interested in this area and interested in developing your skills in this area, it's about developing your people's skills. It's about building much better relationships with people. It's about understanding what makes each individual in your team tick and about how to build team cohesion so that they, they tick together, you know, and they click together. And that is really quite a big change from where most managers and most leaders have been expected to build their skills and their knowledge and their practice and behaviors for, for a very long time. That is a beautiful answer and music to my ears, because actually what I took from what you were saying there was that if you put people at the centre and when you start to put people at the centre, then actually lots of things, you know, the well-being agenda, the equality and diversity agenda, all of those things actually become just part of what you do because you're focusing on the person and what they need and unlocking their power and potential. So yes, it's a great answer. So slightly off, how do you look after your own well-being? <laughs> you know what, it's so interesting. I think about this all the time. And obviously it's because I have the privilege and the curse of understanding this space really well. And you know, the temptation to beat myself up when I don't do the perfect day of a, of a well-being expert, you know, 
is that temptation and that natural human need to keep telling yourself you've got to do better is profound and I have to acknowledge that and be you know okay you didn't go and do your 20 minutes on the treadmill today it's not the end of the world you did yesterday and two days before you know and it's that kind of thinking so how do I look after myself? Well, actually, I can bring this back to the WellWise model. So the WellWise diagnostics and uh, model that we use with organizations has two sides to a circle. The first side of the circle is all about the employee as an individual and the facets of well-being science that we know get the most from an employee. And the other side of that coin is what an organization does and what role they play in that relationship so that both the well-being of the organization and the well-being of the individual are optimized and are mutually beneficial to one another. And so a very small little startup, and we've only got uh, myself, my business partner, and one full-time employee and a couple of part-time employees, I have to be on both sides of that circle <laughs> to myself and, and to the team. And so things that I do for myself is make sure that I'm eating well, that I'm, I'm doing my exercise, that I, I get good sleep and I don't smoke. I, I don't do things that are, you know, known to, to cause challenges with your mental health, et cetera. So, you know, there's that side of it. But on the employee side, on the individual side, it's also about purpose. I am so passionate about this role that I walked away from a very, you know, nicely paying, very stable, very comfortable, very delightful job that I had. And I took a plunge to, to not have an income and, and, and not have that security because I absolutely believe in my heart of hearts that this is the right thing to do. And it was my calling. And that is like, rocket fuel I can't tell you and I know you're you're similar in your journey Mel to find that in your work is so good for your mental health it's so good for your positivity etc spending time with loved ones my partner and finding time for him to sit down and have a proper meal every night and how was your day and all of that good stuff taking time over a weekend to actually enjoy a weekend and not take the temptation go I've got 65 things on my to-do list maybe I should be doing those instead you know balance and then on the other side it's about thinking what are we as an organization what do we stand for and how am I building the structures within the business that, that resonate with my values and mean that I'm not in that constant argument with myself about, you know, money in, money out. How do I maintain those, those structures and values? So we're developing, for instance, a um, profit share model in our pay structure because we believe that it is the right thing to do and we don't want to cap people's potential through salary. So it's things like that where I have to practice what I preach and I have to feel that as a leader and as a company owner and as a boss that I am, I am living out my own values and, and my own beliefs about what a good boss and good work and a good company and in the broadest term good means. I love that around igniting using your purpose and how that fuels your well-being and and I think for me when when I was in a university and and I was responsible for a sizable department then one of my key drivers I loved my job and I wanted everyone else that's what I wanted to create and I knew that by creating that that would have the ripple effect that you talk about so beautifully put thank you 
So as with with all my shows, we have to get to this part of fishiness because fish are a major part of my world. They do climb trees. So for you, when for you have you had to personally really dive deep? Yeah, right now. I mean, this is like... This is it. This doing a startup. Look, I worked for universities. They're one of the most stable employers that you can work for, particularly in the, the way the UK market runs. And I've worked in startups before, but I didn't own them. Um, and I wasn't responsible for paying other people's salaries. And then GSA, again, a very stable environment. I was given a lot of opportunity to, to spread my wings and make my mark there. And I was always known um, and kind of recognized as, as a big networker. I always had this sense that I had to have my head above the parapet and see what was going on and connect with people and keep at the forefront of the conversation. And I was always kind of commended for that within the organizations that I worked for. And, and I felt very strongly about doing that and the risks of not doing that. And, and I, that came very naturally to me and it was nicely funded by the organization. You know, they were the ones paying for me to get on planes and, and stay in hotels and, and eat meals on the expenses budget and all of that. But I was doing that networking within a very uh, niche realm of either university admissions and recruitment or student accommodation. And now I'm having to work out how to dig deep to find networking opportunities with people who have never been in a space I've been in, who have complementary but completely different skills to me. Um, so the other day I ended up meeting with somebody who specializes in helping startups to find investment. That is a world I've never been in, you know, and, and how and just even going and finding that person and then finding the courage to contact them and say, can we have a chat and then meet for that coffee and stuff. So that is a really interesting in that I thought I was an excellent networker <laughs> and now I'm really being tested to network, you know. So, so yeah, that's definitely been it. And, and again, I suppose, I think even though I've always had this very strong sense about people and well-being and have a real high justice and, and fairness factor in my psyche. And I've had that all the way through my business career. And sometimes that's really jarred with people because it, essentially it, it irritates their demons, right? When, when someone says, I don't think we should do that. I know it's a good business move financially, but it's not a good business move culturally. And that did used to irk people in, in various organizations that I worked for. And sometimes that gets knocked out of you and, and you have to fight really hard to keep those values in that environment where it's, it's money first, right? And, and I've had to unlearn some of those behaviors and some of those traits that, that made me successful in that environment. And, and, and when I yielded to those things and I'm not proud of having yielded to them, but that's what happened. But to, to really dig deep and even when in a startup, you know, the financials are hard to balance and all of that sort of thing to always do the right thing and to ask yourself, am I doing the right thing in this conversation, in this decision, etc. And sometimes that is really hard and to have the discipline to do that when you're responsible for making the income is it's hard. It's really hard. So that's that's where I'm a fish out of water or a fish climbing a tree at the moment. But, um, you know, I'm learning. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah so I mean and, and that's the interesting thing with with diving deep I think you know it is a journey that is it's a journey that's a never-ending climb even though you're diving deep because you think that you've got something nailed and then something will come along in, in your life that you've never experienced before and then you have to dive even deeper and so thank you for sharing both of those and, and you alluded to the fact that you, you know you're diving deep but you're also feeling like a fish that climbs a tree are there any other times in your life when you've really felt like a fish that climbed a tree I think when I transitioned out of British universities, bearing in mind, I worked for the University of York when I was a student and I worked there from my first year all the way through to my third year. And, and even through all the summer holidays, I was doing summer camps and things. And then I went straight into working at the University of Cambridge. And then I went through a series of universities, as you do in that role. And and then I moved to Dubai. <laughs> I mean, like, it couldn't have been more different. The universities out here are all privatised. They are all commercial enterprises. They don't have the same structures and history uh, behind them that British universities have. And that's not necessarily better or worse, but it's exceptionally different. The financials are a much bigger part of it here. You're very much more aware of them um, as an employee here than you had to be in, in the UK system certainly the level that I was operating in the UK system. And so, yeah, to move here and do all of that, to leave the UK and the UK weather that we started with and the UK culture, to move into a culture that is so vastly different and then to move into a business environment that was so vastly different to what I'd been used to in, in universities. I tell you what, it gives you a great appreciation of British universities. Um, but also you, you realise where they're weak and how different approaches, um, if they could be applied in the British context of higher education, could actually be really valuable. And so, yeah, so I guess starting that, I guess, more corporate journey, even though it was still in, in universities, and then moving and then my whole career since then has been fairly corporate so uh albeit in the education space so yeah definitely that transition was was profound but I would not change it for the world there is a beauty about this place talking about diversity and inclusion that you mentioned earlier our employee base in even in small teams in the UAE is seven eight ten twelve different nationalities in a team of 30 for instance and there is something so liberating and powerful and interesting about that and about you learn how different people see the world and how different cultures respond to things and you realize that your perspective on the world is so narrow and your sense of rightness is challenged here constantly and your view of things is, is opened up so much. And I definitely believe that my journey in the UAE and my understanding of people globally and culture globally is just so much richer because of that experience and throwing myself in the deep end at 26. What a wonderful experience. So... I've so enjoyed our conversation and I will be inviting you back when you've moved on with your research and your diagnostic to share some of the findings that you have. But in the meantime, how can people get in touch with you, connect with you, find out more about what you do? Absolutely. So the first thing to say is that although I live in Dubai, I have spent my entire Dubai career on and off of planes. I am 
very happy to travel and I love to travel for work. So I don't want anybody to think that just because I'm based in the UAE and that's where I'm a resident that I'm not available on the ground in other countries. The second thing is that there's two websites to give you. The first one is www.bewellwise.com. That's where you'll find all the information about the well-being diagnostics process and employee survey side of things that we work on and the strategic development of Workplace Wellbeing 2.0 and all the strategic side of that. So that's WellWise. Go and check it out. And then Ensurrender, which is my personal management consulting brand. So www.ensurrender, which is E-N-S-O-R-E-N-D-A.com. That's where you'll find... I suppose more the the entry level stuff, so workshops, which I can deliver remotely, but they are better in person, management consultancy, general consultancy. So if you're not quite ready as an organization to leap into the whole offering that WellWise provides and, and you want to take things a bit more stepping stone or you've got a specific issue that you want to look at or you're looking to develop your employer brand, for instance, or assess your culture, that would be where you would come to me as an as an individual freelance consultant as opposed to to what we're offering through Wellwise. So so they would be the two places. I'm all over LinkedIn. So feel free to connect me. I love connecting with people on LinkedIn. I think it's a great platform and it's it's really where the workplace well-being conversation, the diversity and inclusion conversation, the culture conversation, the HR conversations, they're happening on LinkedIn. You know, they're not Facebook type, Instagram type social conversations. They are LinkedIn conversations. And so I would encourage anybody who's interested in space to get into those areas on LinkedIn because because that's where you'll find the latest discussions and debates it's really interesting how that's evolving at the moment it certainly is so I will put all those links in the show notes I'll also put some of the links we haven't had an opportunity to talk but I know there's numerous books that you recommend if people are wanting to learn more about this fascinating subject so it just leaves me to say A massive thank you. I've so enjoyed our conversation. You have certainly dived deep. You are certainly climbing high and doing it all at the same time at the moment. So as we close out the show, what are the words of wisdom that you would like to leave our audience with today? I mean, it's just got to be to take well-being seriously, you know, start educating yourselves about where it's going and the science behind it. It could be rocket fuel for an organization, including a university, if, if it's done right. My gut is, and I've got no evidence to back this up, but my gut is that most people, even our top performers, operate at about 60% of their potential within the current context of of how organizations are set up and the things that get in their way and, and squash their potential. And so if we could just find a way to access all of that other potential that we leave on the table, I really believe that is going to be one of the biggest challenges of the fourth industrial revolution and the future of work. And so it's going to be a long journey. So get get busy, get going with it now. You'll find a community of people that is so invigorated and so ready to help you do that, that it will be an absolute joy and a a real personal journey for you to go on and to lead your organizations and teams on. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Dive Deep, Climb High podcast with me, Mel Luizu. To help build our community of leadership listeners, please leave me an Apple podcast five-star review. Remember, our fishy adventure doesn't have to end here. Connect with me on LinkedIn, 
Instagram and Twitter. Links are in the show notes. Dive deep, climb high, can do leadership in a world of can't.